0: It's count Disney
1: Welcome to Oral Hygiene. We are continuing our dive into A Disney with number three. It's Pinocchio today. This is Matt here. Joining again is Thomas Gorance, the Paranoid American. Hello. 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 You said you were pretty excited for this one.
0: Yeah, just because I think this is probably the movie that I saw the most growing up. Uh, so I'm like way more attached to this one. This one and Dumbo. I think we're we're on repeat the most out of all the Disney movies that, that were in our library um, so so this one just uh, and re-watching it here uh, a lot of it is like the ear bugs I'm realizing that there's like certain weird ticks that I do where I, I hear like rhythms and patterns in things that aren't there and and I can almost trace it back to this scene with Geppetto and his clocks and like they're all going off these different times with like weird noises so so for whatever reason, this one is is buried deep down inside my brain somehow. I guess he didn't
1: have the clock synced up as well as Doc Brown, but yeah, it's like what 150 <laughs> years earlier. So we'll we'll give him a pass on that. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know Disney's still like a giant thing in Japan, so. I often get the what's your favorite Disney character usually character not movie from the kids now I usually go with Dumbo with the explanation that because he can't talk
0: (laughs) so um, I don't know Dumbo's a sad one a real sad one
1: (laughs) and a real weird one but um, yeah I guess one this is the first one where I'm just like yes this I straight up enjoy watching Pinocchio because Snow White I'm mostly appreciating the animation as I said the the movie itself Uh, very good obviously it's a classic but i can't just like kind of sit back with it fantasia you have to like actively watch so you can't really just uh chill with that but pinocchio flows very nicely um
0: it takes it's a great story i mean it's it's fun to watch the animation's great and the pacing i think uh is way better than anything that you would get in the previous disney movies here It, it moves along you know quite rapidly
1: yeah i did notice it takes quite a while to get out of geppetto's workshop but after that point it just keeps like you know if you don't like what's on the screen, wait two minutes, right?
0: <laughs> it's like the most important part, though, right? It's like them watching the miracle of life uh, replayed. So you know, but it's like I think it's like the first half hour or something. It's not, it's not terribly long.
1: No, no, it, it's it's just I some another time I was like, oh, a modern movie probably wouldn't pace it this way. So
0: <laughs> um, yeah, they, they they kick them out and have them on the on the road within like fifteen minutes, probably.
1: I'm going to call back on your, on your um, PR skills, I guess, to give the the TV guide rundown of Pinocchio just to refresh people's brains.
0: Okay. I mean, so Pinocchio, if we don't go to the historical, we just talk about the movie. It's essentially about a craftsman that creates a wooden puppet um, by the name of Pinocchio. And he just kind of wishes that it was a real boy. So one night a magical fairy comes in, turns the puppet into a real boy and uh, the boy kind of gets sent out into the world to become, you know, a real boy, uh, quote unquote, by kind of going through life's trials and tribulations and essentially coming through it morally, you know, intact. Uh, so, like, avoiding, you know, the typical, like, sloth and stealing and, you know, any any sort of uh, what are, you would probably say we're on, like, the Ten Commands, essentially, any sort of, like, moral... Um, failings would result in him not becoming a real boy so it's just kind of his whole entire story through and we're going to get into the esoteric version of that but that's sort of like the back of the you know book summary
1: and i just just of course that summary could also be taken out and applied to ai <laughs> like i'm saying they're thinking hey you didn't the, the movie ai
0: yeah. Yeah. It's like, that's a plot summary for AI as well. So, <laughs> well, I mean, that was, a, that was pretty much just a modern retelling. Yeah. They got the blue of, fairy of the Pinocchio all story. Yeah.
1: So, yeah. I was just, I was just thinking like, uh since you didn't use proper
0: nouns, it's like, Oh, you could like, like put that towards either movie without <laughs> any changes. <laughs> and for And you probably know this, but for anyone that, that doesn't, I always found it interesting that AI was supposed to be a Stanley Kubrick movie. Um, but he, he passed away before he was able to like fully, I guess, collaborate with it. It was going to be him and Steven Spielberg. And then Steven Spielberg kind of took the reins and he claimed that he did what he thinks Kubrick kind of had in mind for it. That part's debatable, but it was just interesting that, that at one point that AI movie was going to be a collaboration between Stanley Kubrick and Steven Spielberg, which is just a, a fascinating concept, even though it didn't pan fully out exactly that way.
1: I remember when that uh, first came on DVD, we found this magic formula where um, I don't remember. There's a point in the movie where we'd start like playing Bjork's Vespertine over it, and it like maybe when he crashed into the water, it magically
0: synced up like Pink Floyd and the Wizard of Oz. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that was intentional at all. It just worked really well. So (laughs) yeah, um, the Pink Floyd Wizard of Oz things absolutely does not work. I um was student teaching about. Uh, 20 years ago and i remember because one of uh, the the guy decided that day the teacher was he was just going to play pink floyd and wizard of oz for all of his classes so i saw it like six times does not sync up
0: <laughs> so you don't have uh, to put it like on on like 45 rpm or like some special uh you know algorithm on on your uh like some special rpm to get it to sync up
1: no, it, it just, you, you got to smoke a lot of marijuana for it
0: to sync up, to be honest. <laughs> well, that always that always helps, yeah.
1: yeah. Now, one that does, uh, not to go wildly off topic, but Pink um, Floyd's Echoes, it's a 20-minute track. If you start that at the um, Infinite and Beyond uh, card of 2001, that does sync up all the way to the end of the movie. So it makes a nice little alternate soundtrack, because there's no dialogue in that sequence anyway, so... <laughs> You can, it, you can I guess that.
0: anything that you can find that's 20 minutes long will sync up to that. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, but it ends exactly when the movie ends. I, you, you do wonder if they were in the studio actually kind of jammed along with that film when, when they did it or something. <laughs> um, that's where I guess we should plunge into Pinocchio a little bit then. Um, this one's not grim. This one's kind of a different, um, you know,
0: gestation, I guess. Right, and actually that's that's a really good point because it's... It, Has it stand out in quite a few different ways Um, you know being from sort of like a a children's book author but he was also on the side of political author. so it's got a lot of uh, politics and and references to things that were going on in Italy specifically at that time that makes it really like an interesting cultural piece almost too like a nice kind of like snapshot in history
1: yeah it's kind of weird with the uh, that seems to be like an Italian thing Uh, because I remember when I read the Inferno um, I, I read an annotated one which actually you know had it was like half of it was the, uh, Dante's of Verna and Vernon the other half was notes of who all these people are which made the book far more interesting of course.
0: Yeah because he's talking about like popes of his time and like scandals that that occurred around his time that if you read it now without those cliff notes you'd have to be like a serious history buff but if you read it at the time it was like you know someone talking about scandalous things about like, you know, Donald Trump or Joe Biden or, or something like that, you know, you would, you would kind of more or less know what they were talking about in that time period.
1: There's a fun thing there is I, I got through the inferno, got through the um, purgatorio and I started the paradiso and got bored because heaven's boring, I guess. This year. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want that.
0: Um, Just a bunch of white clouds. Everyone's playing the same song on the same instruments over and over.
1: Yeah. The, this story was late 19th century. And it, is this, uh, I, not looking at the timeline, wonder if this is when Italy was a thing or when Italy was still kind of a, not really a country?
0: Uh, so, I mean, Italy was was sort of split up politically and they were in the middle of a lot of other turmoil that was going on in Europe at the time. And there was, on a, on a, on a tangent that we can go down here um, in, a, in a short while here, but there's a few that were key players within Italy that were really important to kind of look back in, this, in the time period in which Pinocchio came out of One of those is Giuseppe Mazzini, um, who was essentially like the, he's kind of been referred to as like the Italian Illuminati. Uh, He was with the Carbonari, which was a secret society that was essentially bent on just liberation and revolution, uh, very similar to the French Revolution and the American Revolution kind of happened in like these secret lodges. Well, Mazzini, he had the same exact idea to use the Carbonari to do the same kind of thing throughout Italy. Um, so, anyways, that and there's a lot of crossover here between his writings and his beliefs, and the original author of Pinocchio reading his writings and his beliefs, and some of those finding their ways into the story. Even,
1: I guess my question would be, how much of that actually makes its way into the movie? Uh, the other examples I'm thinking of is um, H.G. Wells, The Time Machine, is like this kind of communist breakdown, right? Which doesn't really <laughs> yes. completely make it to the 1960 film, and then The Wizard of Oz is almost like an economic dissertation, which definitely doesn't make it to the famous version of the film. So,
0: <laughs> right, that one was like uh, walking away from uh, fiat, or no, walking away from the gold standard and into fiat currency, and the and the yellow. This is one that I've heard is that the Yellow Brick Road is saying like follow the gold standard, uh, <laughs> don't go to this fiat currency. That's one of my favorite interpretations of that one
1: yeah yeah and gee we even got Prince near the end of his career doing tunes like the gold standard interesting stuff <laughs> <laughs> crazy amazing yes <laughs> and uh, i am getting the date right with uh, this story being from late 19th century
0: newspapers it was uh, serialized i believe correct it was it was sometime in actually the, like the, the mid 1800s so it was closer to the the mid 19th century than the late 19th century although it was developed over a period of time in like short periodicals almost Almost like a Calvin and Hobbes uh, style, not, not necessarily fully visual, but the way that it was periodic over many, many years and then it got compiled into a single story, um, The Adventures of Pinocchio that became you know sort of this like manuscript that eventually turned into the movie over you know half a century later.
1: And the, the character of Pinocchio, I, I didn't like reread it or anything for, for this uh, for better or for worse, but I, I do remember him being way more unlikable in the uh, literary version. Like, he's kind of a nasty kid.
0: Uh, A little bit. I mean, again, he was supposed to show sort of like the the morals and the tribulations of that particular point in time. And it wasn't necessarily as nice as the Americas in the, the 1940s when the Pinocchio movie came out. You know, this was being written about things that people were going through in like the 1850s or so and I I think the the full book came out in like the 1880s like 1883 or something but it had been you know um, getting compiled over you know decades prior to that
1: yeah better better in the uh, Charles Dickens one where he's uh, apparently paid by the word I've heard that's like not true but I can't read Charles Dickens I assume it is true
0: (laughs) I mean it's a pretty standard practice yeah, like even even today if you try to get, you know, like a ghostwriter or or just like a like a technical writer, they'll charge you by the word essentially.
1: <laughs> but uh and yeah, that, that
0: comes with a lots of extra verbose sort of like over the top extra words everywhere cuz it, it gets you paid.
1: that's why I found that when I was, you know, doing all my my proper reading in high school and university, I found myself gravitating you know, modern English books were were fine, but past that I'd usually enjoyed translated works more because they were translated into more modern English right where a 300 year old book is in pretty creaky English
0: <laughs> yeah they're not they're not really easy to read I, I read a one uh, recently that was written in like the early 1800s and they just had a, a style of using about 50 words where maybe five would do but it was kind of like the, the norm of the time and it took it it's interesting because this book is a good example too, but it just takes better storytelling and better writing techniques. And then everyone that comes after that is like, oh, that's how you tell a story or that's how you organize information. Oh, yeah, of course. We've always known that. But it's, but it's like if you go back 100 years, people didn't always know that. And you go back another 100, it's like, oh, wow, they didn't even really n- understand how to break down information into like digestible sections, only like the, the very best did. Um, so anyways, th- and that's another good example of at least this Pinocchio story is that it does have these very definitive sections and sort of um, events that, you know, have, have these very stark milestones that here ends one scene and begins the next. And that also exists in, in the, the previous original writings.
1: I-, I wonder if part of the appeal for this one, just, just from the creative perspective, then was how kind of modular it was. If you have a team of animators working on one five minute segment, and it's not working. It's, it's not that hard to, um, you know, cancel that one and, and bring in another one. Or as Disney definitely does later on with TV and things, you know, take a segment out of this and just make it like a short cartoon.
0: Yeah, I actually wonder how much, if anything, was kind of left on the cutting room floor of these original animations. Or was it that it was such an enormous amount of work that almost everything was salvaged and we see it all? There's not a lot of information out that that I'm aware of. That would be cool if there was like some, you know, like secret cut uh, cutting room floor scenes that no one's ever seen of like Pinocchio that got, you know, never made it to the movie. That yeah, would have uh, been a lot of invested time and money just to go to nowhere, though.
1: Right. But they were breaking so much ground. Obviously, this wasn't cheap, so I could see money not, not necessarily being wasted, but maybe being used a little bit more experimentally. Um Something else I've heard that you might shine a little light on uh, is that this is the, basically, this is the A team of animators at Disney at the time, whereas the the old men were relegated to the B team and making Dumbo. Uh,
0: actually, yeah, that's, that's a great uh, point here. And you can also see in the, in the title um, opening up here, there's two, I don't know if you noticed this, but when... Uh, I think Jiminy Cricket's like on like a bookshelf and he's kind of walking through and giving this intro. You can see these books on the shelf behind him that also ended up getting the 18. One of them was uh, Alice in Wonderland and the other one was Peter Pan. Um, and this, this almost starts this long running tradition that you could maybe argue started with um, Fantasia or, you know, Pinocchio and Fantasia coming out around the same time, but where they kind of plant these, these images that's a teaser of, of what's yet to come in, you know, the next movies. And, you know, people do that. Now you you trace like the reference to cars and to toy story and, you know, uh, monsters Inc. They all have like a little symbol that connects one movie to the next. So you can almost see that happening here. And I don't know if that's because they knew what teams were going to be on those movies. uh, But those were also two of the other, you know, sort of huge blockbuster hits for them.
1: Yeah, you know, from the perspective now, it's kind of like, well, there's so many years in between, but it's like, well, those were the war years and the Disney animation was a uh, kind of moved on to other projects during that time. So um, the, the big time gap actually does make sense. Kind of like how, the, you know, in 2020, the media was based or at least filmed media was uh, pretty much not made for a year, right? So
0: yeah, everyone just kind of t- took a break to wait and see what would happen.
1: Except for all the uh, quarantine films, those are fun. Have, have you seen any of those? Um, when we did Back to the Future too, I actually brought on the guy that uh, ring one of those, where it just like everyone signed up for a scene, filmed it in or around their house, and uh,
0: that's <laughs> gonna. So. Go. I mean, I saw a couple TV shows where people did it like remotely, and there was uh, a couple movies that came out. The Bubble was one of them, where they all sort of uh, like that's that's the the premise. There's a there was another really good one. I can't remember the name of it, but it was. Something where like these people were living in an apartment building. It was the girl from Orange is the New Black. And uh her and like someone that lives in her apartment building, they realized that there's this big pandemic going on, but I think it ends up being like zombie related. But it's <laughs> it happened during the exact same time as like the pandemic started. So
1: um looking at the town, I i but uh, yeah, maybe it's because I've like been to Germany and Austria. I I, I guess this is a, a really kind of melded sort of um, uh, culture coming through because it's got it's northern Italy but it's got that super Bavarian feel as well.
0: Yeah well well, uh, if you look into the history of some of the names of the actual characters they have these kind of Tuscan variations so that that lines up exactly that you know a lot of this is kind of like in that Tuscan northern um, Italy area.
1: But yeah, because from my understanding, I mean, I haven't been to Italy, but uh, if you hit what Sicily is complete, it's not, I mean, it it really is not the same country. That's why Italy wasn't really a thing until about 130 years ago or well, 150, I guess would be a better number. But
0: (laughs) I think I think one of the examples there of of like specifically the different parts of Italy that affected this time was the the name Geppetto, I think, was like a a diminutive of. Jeppo, which was a Tuscan version of cheppo with a C instead of a G, which stood for like um like a log or like a fat piece of wood, essentially. And that was where the name Geppetto came from. So it was this evolution of like a very specific Tuscan variation of the word for wood, and then turned into a name by adding the etto, you know, Geppetto.
1: Mm. yeah I was just reading a book uh basically about like how guitar woods are sourced but uh having this as one of the major hot spots and um of course they were talking about musical instruments and you do see that one like kind of carved violin and Geppetto's uh toy workshop but or clock whatever I guess he's making a, a bit of a jack-of-all-trades there but uh
0: although he seems to be a, a clockmaker more than anything else but yeah he's got various toys and stuff because I mean I assume that if you're the one woodworker in town you're kind of doing it all
1: although his um... but but
0: it does seem that like making a clock would be very distinct from being a uh, you know a carpenter but but as we get into sort of like the the esoteric meanings of this that it makes more sense than just having some random guy be good at two completely different things
1: well he wasn't good at making violins so that thing was unplayable <laughs> the It might have been like,
0: in there to re- to repair who knows <laughs> maybe
1: i was just like those strings like way off of the fingerboard so that's just that's just not going to happen <laughs> but uh yeah like like i said um they spend 20 plus minutes in the the
0: workshop but they're also creating life so <laughs> uh, that and there's and there is the one of the the best earworms in there but it, it's not even a, a verbal but it's when, like I mentioned, all the clocks start going on. And there's a couple particular scenes that I'll just never forget. One is there's a drunk that comes out of like his house. And there's a big bottle of um, liquor that's essentially like the bottom of the clock. And he comes out and he's got his own little bottle of liquor. And he's like vomiting <laughs> as the, the alarm goes off. Like it's the sound of him either vomiting or hiccuping. I always thought that was hilarious. And then that ties directly into a lady like spanking her kid on her lap. And like the way that the kid yelps every time she spanks him, it's to like denote, you know, the, the second hand ticking. I don't know, for whatever reason, those two are so catchy. Like the actual noises they make are so damn catchy that the, the visuals are kind of like baked in my brain along with those, those noises. And when I was watching this movie again for the first time in, I don't know, like a few months at least, because I watched it, you know, recently, but this, I don't know, for some reason, I feel like I'm, you know, sitting Indian style in front of, an old you know 1980s uh tv again like four inches away when i when i hear this one
1: yeah i I, actually what i noticed is the 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 mildly racist clock that was sitting indian style
0: (laughs) there's a number of them yeah there's a number of of especially as you go into the next disney movies (laughs) um i was gonna say another kind of weird thing that i noticed in the uh the toy shop early on is the sexualized fish cleo <laughs> that oh. has like 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 a, almost like a voluptuous sort of build and these like um these like lips these big you know thick sort of like sexy lips and she's got a thing for the cat apparently because before bed um you know geppetto makes the cat kiss every he kisses the fish and he kisses the cat and he says okay cat now kiss the fish and like she's you know bashful and delighted to get this kiss from him i always thought that was kind of weird and uh, yeah, there's there's like some sexual tension between the cat and the fish. It seems
1: maybe that's getting some uh, Sylvester cat energy. I, I thought my take was uh, the cat wanted to eat the fish, but
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think that's true. But the fish apparently is is unaware of <laughs> of this <laughs> impending doom. And then yeah, that's that we saw that
1: fish basically in Fantasia. So there's a bit of that reused uh, animation. Uh, again, not a problem. I did think it was funny when the the fish goes to sleep. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's not how fish sleep, but
0: yeah, it puts like the little fins <laughs> under her chin and kind of like rests her head like it's a pillow. Yeah. I I love that though. That's one of the coolest parts of uh, these Disney animations is is that that anthropomorphizing of all kinds of like Beauty and the Beast is another great one. Like they made a candlestick and a clock look like you know cool little characters and stuff. I just I find it amazing. To do that because it's a it's a skill that i, I can't even envision that um, but when you see like a disney animator it's like oh yeah of course the the candlestick's a person how can it not look like a person you know
1: yeah we get that uh later in what beauty and the beast too that's a talking candlestick i've actually never watched that movie but <laughs> um well he was like oh yeah I, I did notice when geppetto's wishing on the first star he sees he, he must be pretty close to blind because there's about 50 stars out there <laughs>
0: I mean, I think he's specifically looking for Polaris, but they don't say it by by name.
1: Is Polaris her wishing star? I, I feel like I usually end up noticing Venus, which,
0: of course, not being a star, but... <laughs> Maybe, but, but if we get into sort of like the, the occult and Gnostic um, interpretations of this, it would almost certainly be Polaris, which is the North Star, which is kind of like Lucifer, the firebringer, um, you know, like the Promethean fire. that's It's typically associated with polaris out of all the other stars although that one slowly shifts uh
1: give it a few thousand years we get a different north star does 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 polaris maintain its uh its you know esoteric position or does the new star become the the new light bearer
0: completely depends on who you're talking to (laughs) (laughs) which is what which is what makes astrology such a fun and and inexact science right (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's the fun and yeah
1: because your melding astronomy and your astrology is kind of fun it's just even as the, you know a thought experiment you know so
0: <laughs> yeah and honestly I think it's more stories it's 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 the same thing as you know Pinocchio what like what is the morals that they tell you in Pinocchio everyone might walk away with a slightly different interpretation which they found more important than the other um, so there's a there's an, a, a subjective quality to it but then there's also an objective quality because there was an actual script and um, you know, again, like we mentioned on these previous ones, when someone sits down and, and draws something over thousands and thousands of times for months of their life, uh, it sort of takes away some of that spontaneity and like, oops, we accidentally, you know, snuck in this message. Like, now, someone listened to that many, many times until they were sick of hearing it. Um, so, you know, it, it wasn't like a lot of these things aren't coincidental something
1: that really stuck out because in Snow White the, the dwarves were the humans were rotoscoped where the uh, dwarves were, were not but here it's like Geppetto is is a you know has character animation then the the fairies rotoscoped and I think she's the only character in this movie that is
0: yeah and it's and it's very easy to tell too like there's a there's a distinct look and I I for, um, for people that might not have like an eye for looking at animation over and over but one of the dead giveaways is that there's really no solid outline of her Um, it's almost like all color fills and that was just because it's, it's a little bit easier to sort of rotoscope with just a, a shifting shape as opposed to a shape and the outline that goes with that shape and that once you put that outline um, down it almost starts to define shapes that might not look as natural as you do with the rotoscope so if if you're looking for it you can almost tell it's the same thing as like when you watch old um, cartoons right like old looney tunes and old disney cartoons you could tell what was going to move and what was going to be in the foreground because it always had like a slightly different color palette. It was usually a little bit more simplified and vibrant versus the background, which tended to be a little bit more textured. It was almost like a canvas painting in the background on that far plane. And then sort of like more primary and uh, and like basic colors in the foreground that they would move around in these like cell shading. So there's, there's a little aspect of that too when you compare rotoscope to the other animation because it's done in a completely different technique.
1: But yeah, the thing is we have the more etheric character with the more realistic person behind it, and then Geppetto being a complete creation as the grounded character. so it almost seems like it should be the other way around. but again, the dwarves were the more magical creatures, so they, they had the uh, character animation in Snow White.
0: You know, um, in Snow White, it was actually the queen, I don't think, was um, or the, not the queen, but you know the, the evil stepmother. I don't think she had a whole lot of uh, rotoscope. was mostly the prince and snow white
1: yeah yeah i guess we should break down what geppetto's doing here um because he he just he's making a wish it's like he hasn't uh and he has the lonely. yeah he has no real lonely
0: he doesn't have a wife he has no way to kind of procreate and pass on his knowledge you know he he wants he wants a buddy and he wants a son he's a he's a cat guy (laughs) he just has a cat at home and that's it (laughs) And a sexy fish. Right. (laughs)
1: Wouldn't this be the era of guilds? You'd end up with like an apprentice or something occasionally. (laughs) You don't have to make your own, do you?
0: (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, your apprentice is just going to move on. It's not like yours. It's just the intern that that works there until they surpass you. And then, you know, they might come back and tell you how great you were, but chances are you won't see him again.
1: So does that make if we are throwing a Gnostic overlay on it, does that make him a kind of Demiurge, or, or is that like the Blue Fairy? How do you see that?
0: Well, I think I think the Blue Fairy is the actual, uh, you know, divine essence. So the, the, the fairy is not the Demiurge here. The fairy is that Promethean fire that, you know, that light of Lucifer, that that sort of uh, human creative spark that gets invoked into the material world. Geppetto's the demiurge here because he's the one that's, that's kind of full of flaws and he's trying to take, you know, he's trying to like force this divine power into this flawed creation that he made that's probably got splinters and, you know, little mistakes here and there. Um, like, again, even when the Blue Fairy comes in representing this kind of divine spark, it affects Jiminy Cricket, which Jiminy Cricket is supposed to be Pinocchio's conscience. And the second this happens, he goes from hobo clothes to like a brand new three-piece suit. And he's got like a, a gold watch and he's, you know, like he's completely transformed. And even those little highlights of gold, you could interpret to just say like, okay, yeah, he's been sort of touched by this divine spark. And all of, all of that was profane to him is now sort of gilded.
1: Although I do find it mildly disturbing that, um, you know, your conscious
0: in this case is something that lives outside of you. Um, and they, you can be separated from it actually plays into this because he he loses his conscience in a way that you know you would say someone kind of lost their morals
1: yeah I mean if, if a cricket is going to be as conscious the the I guess my my thing would end up with like you know Star Trek
0: two style earworms
1: so we don't want that <laughs> <laughs>
0: that and what's the lifespan of a cricket I think it's not as long as a, a as a human right so whether you're actually
1: seeing a series of Jiminy crickets in this movie. <laughs>
0: okay. yeah, they they keep reproducing and it's just, a, it's a new conscience each time.
1: Although to be fair, I wouldn't know he was a cricket if that wasn't, you know, in his name. So,
0: <laughs> so uh, I wanted to point out too, we were talking about Geppetto and, and who's the demurge. Well, also um the, the demurge. For, for anyone that's not familiar, and I am not the, the Gnostic uh, expert here, but I've read enough and I've had enough long conversations that I think I get like the, the broad strokes here. But essentially, the demurge is like this God that sits in between the world that we're in, you know, Earth and the physical plane, the, the third and fourth dimension, that, the one that we're uh, communicating in right now, right? Um so above us is sort of this the that created this physical world and above him are the actual gods that are truly ineffable and that are truly infallible, but we're not connected directly to these divine infallible gods. We have this, this middleman, this middle manager that kind of sucks at his job a little bit, uh, kind of takes shortcuts maybe. Um, And that explains why humans themselves are full of flaws and we take shortcuts. Like every one of our flaws is not necessarily in a Gnostic sense of speaking. It's not this original sin um, from, you know, the Garden of Eden and and Adam eating the apple that Eve gives him. It's more that the actual God that created us had flaws. Therefore, he passes flaws down to us. So that's this Gnostic aspect of it. And if you you break down the word demurge in Greek, sort of the etymology of it, it, it derives from this sense of being a maker or an artisan or a craftsman, which is exactly what Geppetto is in the story. He's, he's an artisan. And like you mentioned before, he doesn't just limit it to violins and making music. He also makes clocks. He makes toys. Um, he makes kind of tools that you see in the background. So he is truly like a master craftsman of all sorts of different things. Uh, master with an asterisk there because he pointed out that maybe he doesn't know how to make (laughs) um, a correct violin but I would say that reinforces this concept of a demurge that can't help but create flawed items because he himself is flawed
1: yeah one thing I've already kind of been picking up on on the in several Disney movies both uh, classic and closer to the present is sort of the idea that characters in well Disney and Grimm or, or whatever you know they often do get a chance to meet their maker and they get the chance to ask their maker anything to find out that their maker really doesn't know any answers, <laughs> you know, Pinocchio's continual "whys." He's, he, it's like, he's actually asking his creator. And we assume if we, if that were to happen, we, you know, they'd have the answers, but they, they never do.
0: <laughs> well, not if it's the demurrage, the right? Cause the demurrage the, the is just a kid that got into his, you know, his, his dad's toolbox essentially, so he's not going to have any answers he just knows that he he stuck this thing over here and that thing turned on and something exploded and no oh, god i hope that wasn't too bad that's essentially the demurs, right so it's it's hard getting answers out of him
1: now one other kind of esoteric vibe, and this is just me spitballing again but um jiminy also kind of excuse <clears> me <throat> being in the position of the sort of as record like he's kind of recording what happens with pinocchio it's almost like his job is to observe and uh to provide information when when necessary
0: yeah i mean you could you could almost say that that's what your conscience is your conscience is this thing that's keeping a running tally of all your actions and reminding you of them later so that you can reflect on them and then apply your morality to your actions and that's sort of what the conscience is it's it's this running tally Um, this sort of like, you know, this little meter, this little litmus test that's letting you know, Hey, am I acidic or am I base right now? And it helps you kind of keep in balance with it.
1: I also found it entertaining this time. Geppetto wakes up after snoring, like my wife accuses me of snoring, but, (laughs) but, uh, he gets up, you know, and he's like, Oh, someone's broken into the house. But the the thing he's hearing was born in the house. You can't break into a house if you're born there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and he doesn't just wake up. They were they were uh, making all sorts of of calamity there because Pinocchio was just for the first time kind of figuring out how to operate his human body, so he's completely out of sorts, and of course he starts knocking over and destroying all the other Demurge's creations. Uh, you know, sort of like you could say humankind as it sort of you know came onto the scene, starts destroying things and knocking things over to kind of make way for its evolution.
1: And let's not forget that Geppetto sleeps with a, a gun by his pillow
0: <laughs> Yeah well Winnie the Pooh had a gun too next to his bed right A lot of the old uh, Disney characters had guns at, at a certain point but uh, that's for that's for another episode we can try that might be an interesting one to kind of trace the use of uh, firearms and in, in Disney <laughs> cartoons and like pinpoint the decline and and the ramifications of it that'll be an interesting. 100
1: acre woods was gangster man <laughs> but uh yeah i do just because uh, i was watching like a star trek not too long ago where the guy's yeah you know, sleeping with a phaser under his pillow it's a big deal right and i'm like well man geppetto that's just that's what he does every day which is cool um we didn't break down pinocchio's name yet which i guess this is probably the best place to think about that
0: well, well i wanted to point out too because you, again you mentioned before that um all the different things in his shop and he wasn't just a clockmaker and i mentioned that in sort of a Gnostic sense it, it makes a lot more logic and that's because um, clocks represent the fourth dimension which is time which is kind of this this boundary that um, sort of traps us in the physical realm and again as a Gnostic demurge that kind of sits outside of our you know physical plane that controls us he's in control of that fourth dimension that time so again this is another reference to Geppetto literally being a a demurge not just you know if you loosely look at it and bend over and you know close one eye and squint it kind of looks like that it's it's more like there's all of this building up examples of why he he really is a demurge in this story
1: now just one thought though is uh in terms of Pinocchio absolutely and that's the name of the movie so that's the main idea and that but we do have like an outside world outside of Geppetto's workshop which he would not have created.
0: Like with the- well I guess we don't we don't uh, necessarily know that um in like a, in a highly you know sort of like metaphysical sense he could if he's the demurge that workshop could be the source of everything you see outside the workshop you know that could be that could be like God you know Santa's workshop and all the toys get sent out from there um but like the magic all starts in this one location but this is this is reading far <laughs> uh deeper into it than the the movie itself explains so
1: no, I was just going to go total 2022 and throw out the uh, the multiverse idea that Geppetto's workshop is like, you know, Pinocchio's universe, basically. Right. So because uh, if, if the Blue Fairy had not brought him to life, he probably you know, wouldn't may have never left the workshop unless he was purchased or something. And since Geppetto seemed to really make uh, Pinocchio is kind of a personal thing, it didn't seem like it was something he was planning to sell.
0: Well, no, he he was lonely and he wanted a buddy. And even even before he wished that he was real, he was specifically saying like, oh, wouldn't it be great if that new toy that I just carved was a, you know, was like a real boy. And he's like saying it out loud before he even makes the wish. So just like the presence of this, you know, human figure, just that itself kind of like delighted him a little bit. And I, I mean, I, I keep going back to this, the Mears thing, but it's also, you know, like like uh, God creating. The, the form like the Gnostic gods creating these forms of humans out of like the mud and the dirt and kind of like shaping them before they breathe life into them it's kind of like that same thing like you're you're creating like a general vessel and then once it looks similar to you you identify with it and then the divine spark comes yeah. in, the, well, in the shape of this blue fairy essentially
1: or it could be the idea that everyone's perception is a you know a slightly different universe so from Pinocchio's perspective for Pinocchio, he's the Demiurge, but maybe the kid down the street, that's not the case.
0: Yeah, the kid down the street's got a different Demiurge, I guess, yeah. in, the, in the realm of Pinocchio.
1: Right, find find your own Demiurge, okay. <laughs> um Oh yeah, the cat's Figaro, I don't know, I just I, I was just actually listening to a podcast about Mozart, so I was like, oh, Figaro, okay, there he is. <laughs>
0: I really like the cat in this movie. I think the cat gets kind of a bun wrap. It gets like kicked around by Pinocchio, and Geppetto steps on the cat. And but the cat legitimately is like a nice cat. It doesn't do anything really mean. It even kisses the stupid fish.
1: <laughs> um, I guess it is a school night here because they're uh, staying up pretty late on a school night. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that is the first thought. Oh, you need to. I. You just came into creation now you need to go to school
0: <laughs> well it's it's more like um you've just been um you know you've just had this human divine consciousness put into you now you need to develop it or you're going to lose it entirely that's essentially what the the blue fairy tells the Pinocchio says, you know, you have to go out into the world and you have to be a good boy in order to become a real boy. So the implication there is that if he doesn't do this and he doesn't become a good boy, then perhaps he just stays forever. This flawed being or, or maybe even that divine spark leaves him again and he just goes back into like a dead, you know, pile of, of pieces of wood. It's, it's never directly implied, but it, it feels like that's almost like an ominous um ultimatum that she gives him you know it's like do this or die
1: (laughs) yeah and of course the first thing Pinocchio does on his own volition is light himself on fire so
0: (laughs) (laughs) and and he seems quite proud about it as well so he's oblivious yeah Geppetto is like running around with uh with Pinocchio on fire Pinocchio's got like a big smile on his face he's just happy at like the commotion and and just like everything that's going on doesn't realize that you know, I guess he would just violently die. I suppose he has no pain at that point. So if if uh, Geppetto didn't stick his finger into Cleo's water bowl to put his finger out, would he just kind of like silently sit there? Or would he start screaming at one point? I always wondered that.
1: <laughs> yeah, he feels, feels no pain, I guess. Um, he does have that like kind of exorcist spinning head thing. I, I, I noticed there's an awful <laughs> lot of, his, I mean, I guess that's because he's a puppet and you can do that. But uh, yeah, later media has informed uh, what's happening here. It's, you know, the the almost lifeless, weird grin of a spinning head is kind of creepy to the modern viewer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think I think it's pretty standard fare, though, for uh, wooden marionettes.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, obviously, that's something you would do in that case.
0: Now, once he does get
1: out into the world, he meets foxes, which is weird because um, I think they're the only like. Like anamorphic characters in this movie. <laughs> Everything else is a human or an animal that cannot communicate.
0: Right. Well, yeah. I mean, you've also got the, um, the donkeys that they slowly turn into. So I guess like during that transition, they're like a hybrid anthropomorphic donkey that can talk, but then they slowly lose like the, the worse they behave and the more they lose their morals um, and stray away from this education and and losing this kind of like divine spark then they lose their ability to to talk as well
1: yeah i I guess literally the the joke is they become an ass i don't know if that works in italian or not but
0: (laughs) uh that you know yeah it it definitely works um the other part of it too was that the donkey kind of represented this this aspect of like slave manual labor and part of i guess kind of like the moral here uh, like a very surface aspect of it is that if you squander your education and you skip school and instead of learning a trade and instead of learning a skill then you're essentially just going to be relegated to manual labor for the rest of your life and that um people that got pushed into just manual labor because they had nothing else to fall back on were very easy to exploit and that was the whole that's kind of like the the very um superficial easy to read version of all this is that you skip school you have to do a manual labor job you get exploited for doing it that's these donkeys that you turn into that just um were essentially being used for manual labor
1: of course his first job is uh is, is performance which seems more useful i mean
0: well he wants to be an actor that's that i always thought that was funny too that, that this even the song that they they are singing is all about like oh i'm gonna go and be an actor which you know um ironically and like now a kid wants to go into Hollywood. And star in disney movies there's a good chance that it's not going to turn out so great at least in, in, a, in a numbers game you know statistics speaking
1: yeah i guess uh, what, what is the um what is the carnival guys i think
0: name? it's a uh, and they're singing an actor's life for me i think it's something like that i, I got can't no remember st- the exact i got I no strings on things.
1: me Oh, and that might be there, but yeah, I got no strings on me. Is the, well, that's that's the, the uh, I've the got song. no strings
0: to hold me down, which is probably my favorite song out of the entire
1: movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was still playing in my head this morning. So there, there's another earworm for us. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I just uh, think about the musical earworms and a little more than the sound effects ones. But I'm like, oh, the sound effects really take hold. That's kind of cool, too. <laughs>
0: I mean I really feel again that it might seem so weird but that's that stupid spanking clock with the kid yelping on beat it's it's almost like it brings me to like uh like the the sampling of like the 80s and 90s where you would take like a clip of something that wasn't supposed to be a percussive instrument and you turn it into a percussive instrument you pitch it and you turn it into a melody you know what I mean like like that kid getting spanked was like a 1940s you know akai mpc sampler uh drumbeat almost it was it's so cool to, to hear
1: Yeah, well, it was in the 80s because you you paid so much money for the device that could do that whereas now you. Well, can that was like it the, your... the
0: sb 1200 or something and it had like all six seconds of of uh, a <laughs> sampling time yeah and it cost like over a grand at the time too
1: now, sometimes I entertain students by sampling them and letting them play it on the uh, virtual keyboard. So <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's awesome. <laughs> but it, yeah, it just make them do something in English makes it educational, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, he does tech. I don't know. He, he you know, ends up with a, a new stage parent, I guess, a, a horrible stage parent, like, uh, is it Stromboli is that his name? Anyway, if, he, if Stromboli and was... in, in yeah. the
0: book it's the coachman, and they're they're completely different depending on if you're wa- reading the book or watching the movie. But the movie it's it's Stromboli, which confused me because I don't think I or like this was one of the scariest scenes in the movie for me at least was when he's actually in this carriage and they're driving it and it's all bumpy and there's like lightning outside and he's you know imprisoned here. That was so scary that every time I saw Stromboli on a menu. Um, at an Italian restaurant after that, I just completely ignored it, just thinking it was like something that I had wanted nothing part of. But then it turns out it's actually quite delightful.
1: <laughs> yeah, they, they serve you a hot mess of some kind. <laughs> but um, like in that case, you know, Pinocchio had some bad luck. Uh, that could have been a workable situation, I suppose, if, if Stromboli had not been such a...
0: Uh, I don't know. I, I think I disagree just because, again, the, the premise here was that he was given this this divine spark of humanity and don't squander it. Mm. And part of that was like go to school. But the go to school was was again like not literally go to school, even though he skipped school on like the first day. That's kind of <laughs> where the whole the whole plan goes awry. But it was, it was again, it was like, don't, don't um, you know, just squander this divine spark of creation that you've been given. And it's the very first thing he does. So, of course, he ends up with uh, with Stromboli. He's he's willing to be exploited at the first person that will let him. So that's exactly where he turns out. He, you know, he meets the fox and his friend, and they sort of realize, like, oh, we've got a, a unique little novelty here that could be, you know, almost like sent into the circus. And that's kind of where Stromboli gets him. And, and this is another interesting one, too, is that. Um, I think that after we get the pleasure Island, which I'm sure we'll get into in a second, but in the book, um, I believe he's going to be sold off to like the options are to be sold off to, um, a manual labor where they're just like running around in a mill. One was a drum maker where they were going to skin Pinocchio and use his hide to make drums and the other one is, was to go into a circus so in the movie it's like Stromboli putting Pinocchio directly into a circus before they get to Pleasure Island but in the book it's a little bit different but they it's it's interesting because they, they pick and you know choose like little threads here and there to include
1: yeah it, again that's why I was thinking with the construction of the film it's made where you could take out five to eight minutes and kind of show it on its own which I would just see as being a smart thing to do in the early 40s with your animated feature length
0: <laughs> would, this will be we, the absolutely most terrifying scene to to uh, extract and show <laughs> someone without context
1: <laughs> yeah that could Here, be here's the
0: scene of, of like a, a strange old man just kidnapping a child and that's <laughs> it it just starts and ends with you know this guy kidnapping
1: and then and then pinocchio's lies create life I never caught on that before, you know, it's because his nose grows when he lies to the blue fairy, of course. But then birds plot come out of his nose and fly away. So, again, now,
0: now Pinocchio is a demiurge to those birds. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the lies quite literally start taking on a life of their own and he can't control it. Um, and he tries pushing it back in. You know, he's like trying to get his nose back into his face, um, which is, you know, futile because, uh, you know, the, the lies are out there.
1: Yeah. No, who knows? Maybe that's a metaphor. That that, that comes across as pretty sharp. <laughs> um, oh, this was weird. when they cut back to Geppetto's workshop and it's showing him like, Oh, I gotta go search for him and the animals. Did you notice how he feeds his fish?
0: Uh no, pointed out to me.
1: Okay, he had he had taken a piece of chocolate cake, ra- uh, tied a red ribbon around it, and dropped it into the fish tank.
0: It's <laughs> like that's fantastic. That's how and, that's how they used to feed fish in the forties.
1: Yeah, and and of course the cat had that ridiculous um uh fit. Well, he was eating fish. Yeah, he was getting a much larger fish, so good for the
0: cat, I guess. But <laughs> that would make me a little nervous. Yeah, you see someone eating the bigger version, but whatever. <laughs>
1: Yeah. 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 That'd be terrifying if you saw someone over yonder eating a human while you're trying (laughs) to have your chocolate cake. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. I guess we should move on and start making our way towards Pleasure Island. That that is what sticks in people's head the most from this movie, I guess. I don't know. There are so many things that could you can think of the whale, too. So (laughs) But but Pleasure Island is that that's one where okay you could just have like a Pleasure
0: Island cartoon still very disturbing of course but yeah and in, in the book it was the land of toys and um they they specify in the original book that the land of toys is in this this kind of um, fictional region that more or less translates to Cockney um, which is also interesting because Unreal like unrelated semantically to cockney the stromboli character actually speaks in a cockney slang which is the same name as the the sort of utopian world that they came from in the book Um, and just to to put a hat on top of a hat here cockney meaning like a cock's egg which is something impossible that can't exist and and, in like medieval alchemy the creature that would come from a cock's egg was a basilisk and a basilisk represented, um, depending on how you look at it, like in alchemy, there's like this chemical version of it, where it's an actual chemical formula that was kind of telling people how to transmute metals and the properties of, you know, different substances. And then there's the alchemical um, sort of like metaphorical version, which, which is talking about again, like the human divine spirit and how to purify it and a basilisk In both of those instances both in the chemical and in this metaphorical alchemical sense uh, represents purification by fire or trial by fire or going you know going through hell and coming out the other end um, sort of like through atonement so you could almost make this this direct correlation of cockney in the book is this utopia this pleasure island it's literally in in cockney and um, stromboli being this cockney guy bringing Pinocchio there. So I always I always found that was so interesting because because Pleasure Island is essentially hell. If this, if this were the Bible, you know, if Pinocchio were the Bible. This is like the book of Revelations essentially is when they go to Pleasure Island and all turn into donkeys and it's just horrible everywhere. And this is his trial by fire. This is what purifies him and turns him back into a good boy and lets him restore his morality again.
1: Now in the movie, it seems he's basically on the island for about one night. I feel like he was there longer in the book, if I'm correct.
0: It's yeah, I mean they they condense it a little bit, but there's there's a cup there's one similar aspect that's that regardless of the full passage of time, is that the worse you are as a as a kid the quicker you turn into one of these asses. So the friend that Pinocchio was with, he turns into an ass almost immediately because he's essentially the worst kid on all of Pleasure Island or in the book, the worst kid in the land of toys. So it's almost like the second he steps foot on the island, it's like, bam, he's an ass. For Mm -hmm. Pinocchio, it takes him a little bit longer. He has to make a whole bunch of, like like a series of bad decisions. And each time he makes a bad decision, he turns a little bit more into an ass more and more until he eventually, you know, almost becomes complete ass. So it's, it kind of just shows though, that like Pinocchio is being afforded multiple mistakes that he keeps screwing up, but you could, you could again, argue though, that like he has to make these mistakes. Like he has to go through hell in order to be purified and come back out a real boy.
1: Well, until he's a real boy, he, he does maintain his, his donkey parts. So they don't go away when you leave the Island,
0: so and I and I would be remiss if I didn't mention because this this part is probably my favorite sort of like Gnostic um, like secret um, hidden meaning aspect of it because there's a a book called the Metamorphoses of the Golden Ass and it's uh, it's a much older book than Pinocchio was and it was almost certainly one of the inspirations for this pleasure island or the land of toys. Cause even the land of toys, they both turn into an ass. That's one of the, the, you know, consistent themes between the book and the movie, but in the, the metamorphosis of the golden ass, there is a person that gets tempted by the wonders of magic. And it's, and it's this foolishness of being enticed by like magical thinking. Again, it's, it goes to this morality of you've been given this divine spark. Are you going to harness it? and try to educate yourself and you know evolve or are you going to just elapse immediately into magical thinking um which is almost like the the complete departure of trying to educate yourself it's just you know um you know let jesus take the wheel that's kind of like the magical thinking aspect of this here so in the book of the metamorphosis of the golden ass once someone kind of embraces this wonder of magic it leads them to join like a mystery cult and then in part of this, they become an ass. And the golden ass is is literally that. It's it's like to show like what an ass this person is.
1: I am thinking of a book I read a few years ago about when one of the the long-lived, you know, Indian guru types who um, you know, he never I, I as apparently at some point someone asked him, did you read the uh Bhagavad Gita? And he's like, I don't need to, it's written in the universe. Just as an instinct of touche, I guess <laughs> touche a little bit. <laughs> Mad, just yeah, just like he's obviously like full on magical thinking, yeah. right? So I've, I've
0: got a library card to the Akashic Records, so I don't need to check <laughs> anything out. I'm just always there.
1: That's kind of what he was saying. Yeah. Now if, if yeah, well, that's.
0: Think- I mean, to I understand it. I mean, I I talk to a lot of people that that strongly believe in the magical thinking. Um, I guess my take on that is magical thinking to me personally in my, you know, somewhat limited worldview, but magical thinking is almost like if I fall asleep with my math on this head book through osmosis, you know, the formulas will just seep into my brain and then I'll understand it all. It's like, no, you actually have to to like with intent and focus, you know, digest the material over and over and practically apply it and, um, you know, see if it works for yourself. But um, that's, not, that's not everyone's worldview.
1: No, I've, I've I mean, I'm, I've always got five books open on my iPod at any given moment. So <laughs> uh, I'm certainly not going against reading. I just thought it was an interesting um, kind of polar opposite to that to that idea. So. <laughs> and learning to experience, I guess that's why I was getting at earlier with I was like, well, I don't know if, if Stromboli wasn't such a villain. You know, maybe Pinocchio could learn from these experiences traveling around. Um you know the the school of life man now again this is a mor- morality play so obviously he was in the wrong place so i was just thinking well from a realistic perspective you you could learn this way too
0: yeah i mean but i think i think there's like the the movie kind of proves but one of the points that i take away from it that they don't overtly state it but if pinocchio had just gone to school that day and just done exactly what he was told i'm not convinced that he necessarily would just like magically become a real boy Either You know, um, it's like, this is a little bit of a stretch here, but I guess it's, it's almost like the story of Jesus, right? Like if, if Jesus knew that he was going to get crucified, and he ends up like running away or avoiding it somehow, then he doesn't die for the sins of the world. And therefore, you know, original sin um, doesn't get washed away. And therefore, Christianity, and the whole point of Christianity doesn't exist. So it's like, he had to get crucified in order For sins to be washed in in that mythology so in this mythology of Pinocchio Pinocchio has to go to Pleasure Island he has to get kidnapped by Stromboli he has to be purified by that fire of the basilisk in order to become a a real boy he never could have done it by just going to school and doing his homework and going home it just never would have transformed him because he needed to go through a truly alchemical transformation not just a regular ho-hum you know do what's expected
1: yeah, so, you know, if, if he had just gone to school for a few weeks, the Blue Fairy would have shown up. And okay, I guess I'll make turn you yeah, into a <laughs> you're robot. Good to go.
0: Yeah, it's like getting the, <laughs> the allowance, right? Like he just slowly becomes a real boy over time instead of becoming a donkey and then immediately getting transformed. But But interestingly enough, it's like she comes and it's like even though he's part jackass for doing all this dumb stuff and never point out, never actually goes to school a day in his life um, despite that being what he needed to do, but like you said, you know, he kind of went through the school of life. He didn't go to, the, you know, the school down the street and that might've even been what the fairy was getting at. It's certainly what the movie gets at. There's there that, that caught me with
1: the fairy being, like, okay, this is, this is the last time I can possibly help you. I'm like, I don't know. He's kind of your responsibility. You made him. <laughs> well, you <laughs> gave him life. I should say Geppetto made him. She gave him
0: life. <laughs> I think she was just saying what he needed to hear. It's one of those aspects
1: yeah yeah I'm just saying uh, don't shirk your responsibilities fairy you, you made the mess
0: <laughs> well you made you made the uh, possibility of the mess so <laughs> and, and I've got a random tangent here too that the actress for the the blue fairy here she was also among others there was there was like four different models but she was one of the main models for Columbia the Columbia Pictures logo Um, which existed from 1936 through 1970 or something so if you've seen that Columbia um, you know movie intro before any kind of old movie that was the same exact lady or one of the four ladies that posed um, was this blue fairy like she she was fairly popular for being sort of like a mod like a rotoscope model in, in a lot of different aspects it's like now you have the uh, the major voice work actors, right? So, <laughs> yep. And and sh- when she retired, she basically um, became obsessed with classical Greek plays and became like a Greek um, drama teacher. So, so again, I'm just it just ties back into like the the people that were involved in this movie. They couldn't have read the script and watched it and not seen some of these, you know, like Greek mythological archetypes and these gnostic. Uh, sort of teachings like it, it is just so heavy and the people that were involved were so deep into this that it's impossible that it just went completely over their heads
1: yeah I mean that's why we're doing this because uh, even uh, a big a fan of Disney is going to be like good animation still entertaining but maybe not missing all the because you know it's, it's not it's cool stuff baked in it's interesting stuff it makes the movie way deeper right <laughs>
0: yeah and and it's and it's it's such a like a timeless story you could almost do like a like a joseph campbell style hero of a thousand faces hero's journey um not not beat for beat here but just the concept of an inanimate uh flawed human that needs some kind of external assistance this is almost like the uh the wise old mentor um or the one that bestows some like some um, you know mythological gift that has supernatural powers they give the protagonist it's it's just the same archetype it just happens to be the blue fairy instead of the wise old man in this story Um, but they follow like these same beats and those archetypes exist for a reason it's because they're very motivational and they tap in they tap into something in our lizard brains that that's like hey you've been here before and it's like you know like like an ancient memory that you've got one other thing that hit me on
1: pleasure island is um just visually where we're coming from because you know in 15 years disney's kind of gonna try and make its own pleasure island right uh with with no alcohol served at it but uh you know so they already
0: had one right like you were familiar with the pleasure island that was in orlando for a while Uh, yeah i think i may know about that
1: um yeah and and also i was thinking like visually like like luna park something like that you know i i have a the coney island places were kind of known for being uh you know places to go have some pleasure i guess
0: (laughs) yeah it's interesting the the change of the land of toys to pleasure island um in the name of this disney movie again i don't know i don't know if the connotation of of pleasure island in 1940 um has the same imagery that gets conjured up in 2022 (laughs) but pleasure island definitely takes a much more adult sort of uh um, you know ambiance when you mention it versus what happens in the movie yeah because yeah. what happens in the movie was like every I assume every like 12 year old boys fantasy in 1940 which was to play pool and smoke cigars and not have any <laughs> adults around that was that was like the pinnacle of, of uh, utopia for a 12 year old I guess in the 40s
1: yeah eight ball bar looked like a fun place to hang out sure why not <laughs> It honestly looked very a...
0: similar to most of the pool halls that I saw in the military.
1: <laughs> I I was um put some pinball machines. I, I was reading it. Apparently, in the 30s, uh, pinball machines were considered extremely decadent, and uh, you know, things you should stay away from. Those pinball halls as well. So <laughs> <laughs> to the point where New York City apparently had like anti-pinball laws all the way into like the 80s or something. It was crazy.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well. Well, that was a. Uh... Well, this is a fun tangent just because I'm, I'm obsessed with sort of pinball history too. But, <laughs> but part of that is because they saw it as a gambling machine because for the longest time, it was almost like written in legal code somewhere that um, pinball didn't operate on skill. It operated purely on chance. And the fact that you could put a quarter in. And, you know, either like get extended play or get these points that could potentially be redeemed for something else that there was no skill involved. It was all just happening per chance and just like random, you know, number generation. They made it illegal, but it actually took someone to play it well enough to prove that it was actually a skill based game that overturned this idea of looking at pinball machines as lottery machines and gambling machines as opposed to an arcade machine. Um, which might also be part of the premise of, of Tommy, the pinball wizard. Uh, but I, but I believe it's, it's actually rooted in, in you know, fact, and that's why they were banned and then unbanned later on.
1: Yeah. Uh, in Japan, we have a pachinko machines, which truly is not a game of skill. Um, the balls just drop gambling is, is not legal. So the weird, um, solution is people get their balls and then they can trade their balls at a different store next door for you know stuff <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> so they didn't gamble there they gambled somewhere else but the place where they redeem it doesn't know if they gamble or not to get those balls therefore they're not you know assisting the gambling product yeah it's a, it's i guess every country has their own workarounds and red tape right
1: yeah yeah exactly but um you ever step into one of
0: those places it'll it's like it'll
1: instantly drive you insane
0: i was lucky enough that i i had some neighbor or my grandparents had these neighbors um in upstate new york that had pachinko machines in their basement because i guess one of the guys had gone to um japan and part of like a military tour and fell in love with pachinko machines and bought like two or three and brought them back and I remember just going down in the basement while all the adults were upstairs doing boring stuff, just playing pool and smoking cigars and playing pachinko machines.
1: <laughs> did, did you get a donkey tail?
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, I've still got it to this day.
1: <laughs> uh, we definitely need to move on to our giant fish. I can't call it a fish. It's a whale. I used to teach at the whale camp. We made it clear that whales are not fish there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, in the book, it is a fish. Um, and I forgot, I forgot what type of fish. Uh, I wish I could remember. I might have to look it up, but the, in the, in the book, it is specifically a type of fish that has fish in the name, but yeah, in, in the movie, it's a whale. Um, I don't think it really matters between the two, if it's a fish or a whale, because they both kind of represent the same story. Um, the biblical story would be Jonah and the whale, but Jonah and the whale itself. Uh, you know, pre-day. It's based on older pagan stories, just like every single story in the Bible is. Um, but this, this is such an, another interesting aspect of it because, uh, for example, whale versus fish, right? In the Sistine Chapel, Jonah next to him on the Sistine Chapel, it's actually a fish. It's not a whale. It is very clearly a fish next to him. Now, I don't know if that's because, you know, when it was originally painted, they just didn't care a whole lot about big fish versus whale it might have been kind of you know potato tomato sort of uh situation
1: maybe you know these things have become whales more recently because we're not really willing to accept a fish that big i mean there could be way deep in the ocean i don't know but the idea of a fish that big seems kind of like ridiculous whereas a whale that size seems perfectly reasonable
0: well i think a, a fish the size of a whale was sort of referred to as like a Leviathan it was this like monstrous sea creature um, that you know like uh, like almost a, a mythological creature because I, I imagine that if you had never seen like a video of a whale and your whole life the biggest animal you know if, if you didn't go to a zoo right what's the biggest animal you think you would see in normal life in your normal life from when, when you were born um,
1: because you got to get high-
0: rid of what elephants and rhinos and whales and like do you, you wouldn't have seen a giraffe unless you went to Africa. So what do you think the largest animal you ever would have seen in real life would be from where I'm sitting right
1: now, a bear, <laughs> a bear, maybe. Yeah. I mean, obviously well, not how much bigger there. than a bear <laughs> is a
0: freaking whale, man. I mean, I would just, I could just imagine someone, you know, coming back from sea and describing the sheer size of like a whale that they might've seen and be like, yeah, yeah. You know, I get it. You're, you're kind of like pumping up your stories to make it sound more impressive than it is. But <laughs> truly, I mean, these things were, they must have looked like monsters. So again, like whale, huge fish, who the hell really cares? It was like a huge monster thing out under the, the water that you couldn't see. Right. Um, now,
1: Pinocchio has some superpowers, though, because as he's, you know, Geppetto, of course, is trapped in the uh, in the whale Jonah style or whatever and pinocchio doesn't have to breathe because he's a puppet why does he want to be a real boy he's he's like an x-man right now
0: (laughs) that's a good point man you can't like a piece of wood can't drown um maybe you can get you know what waterlogged or something pun intended but uh yeah he it was like the if he were a real boy at this point he never would have been able to save geppetto his dad and geppetto would have died yeah exactly so i i
1: wonder if a, a the ending of this movie should be Pinocchio accepting himself as what he is
0: I don't know I <laughs> <laughs> mean, if if you wanted to go beat for beat and and um keep playing this through like like a mythological archetype then essentially Geppetto would have would have gotten out of the fish on his own after three days and nights, which is a very mystical repeating number here, you know, uh, Jesus in the cave three days, three nights, but he goes into the whale for three days and three nights. And he essentially would have just prayed back to the same North star, Polaris, uh, Lucifer, Prometheus, whoever you want to call it, that would have come down. And just like in the the book of Jonah, uh, God essentially forces the whale to vomit and, you know, spit Jonah back up. Um, in the in the movie he doesn't vomit he just kind of gets like sent back out through the blowhole Um, so it's it's a little bit less but I guess you know a a whale vomiting is actually a pretty normal aspect of its routine it's not like going to the bar and and passing out and like throwing up chunks you know like that's actually part of just the whale um, pushing the water back out through its, its teeth essentially
1: right I caught a cold from a whale once that was weird I mean they are like you know closely related um doing the whale camp i'm on a boat i'm a teacher the whale comes in, and of course when it blows it's basically like blowing snot at you right so i got covered in whale snot and had a cold the next day so i'm assuming that I really
0: that's s- interesting i don't i don't <laughs> know if i've ever met someone that, that caught a cold from a whale that's
1: <laughs> that's my claim to fame my father's claim I mean... to fame is is getting crapped on by seagulls on the east and west coast within a, in the same month
0: <laughs> you have know, i've got a I've I've got this short list of um, easily achievable moments in human history. Like for example, if you're the first person in space, you can be the first person to do a whole list of very mundane things, but be the first person ever. Right. So like, like the the first person to this is probably taken but like the first person to stub their toe in space that one's easy the mm-hmm. first person to get mugged in space the first person to mug someone else in space like <laughs> there's all sorts of very easy things but man you could just go out in space and just be the first one to do so many freaking things
1: it's like the uh, george carlin bit where he's like i'm gonna st- say sentences that no one's ever made before yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah exactly
1: <laughs> <laughs> i so yeah, they shouldn't let you into the space pro- program you'll be mugging the other i'll, I'll take over
0: all of it yeah the, the whole guinness book of space records would just be me on like the first hundred pages like this guy got all the low-hanging fruit it's not even fair <laughs> the first person to say their name the first person to recite the alphabet like come on these aren't even real things
1: um we've got about 15 minutes so i just want to make sure we're not missing any major topics you want to hit on this one
0: uh yeah let's see oh so this this is one this is this is less about the movie itself but there's this funny anecdote about the movie premiere and i don't know if you looked at my notes and saw this or if you've heard this story before about the pinocchio premiere in um in rockefeller center in new york city uh excuse me no
1: no. keep keep going i am not i'm not drawing a hit on that one
0: Okay, so when the movie um, first was released, it was this big to do. You know, again, this was immediately following Snow White. This is on the the you know the the trail of um, this huge kind of like blockbuster first time that it's ever come out full length uh, color motion movie, and they really wanted to follow this up with the big bag and keep the promotion going to establish Disney as you know the cartoon company of the world essentially. And in part of this, to hype everyone up, they went out and they created a whole bunch of Pinocchio costumes that were essentially, like if you look at Geppetto in the movie and Pinocchio standing next to him, Pinocchio is the size of like a small toddler, you know, like a a tiny child essentially comes up to maybe Geppetto's waist, not even. So Disney had this really smart idea to create these little Pinocchio costumes and find little people. The, you know, adult little people that would put these Pinocchio costumes on and essentially just go and interact with um, families and children that were waiting in line to go and see this movie at the premiere. So he he does this, but it's a really, really hot day out. And these little people aren't necessarily like trained actors or anything. They literally just went out and found anyone that would kind of like fit the height requirement to get into these suits. Um, and then in order to keep them entertained cuz i don't think they were paid a whole lot they essentially just gave them like a big spread like a like a craft services table they just had you know sandwich meat and just all kinds of stuff on it and then what apparently was like an endless supply of alcohol um so what happens is that at the beginning of the the night in the premiere um it's fine you know they're they're going they're interacting but as the hours kind of pass by, they're getting drunker and drunker, and you know, essentially, I what I can only imagine because the the amount of information on this is very sparse. There's there's photos of the event, and there's newspaper reports after it happens, so we can we can be somewhat certain that this event actually did happen. But all of like the fine details are a little bit um, hazy. But but essentially. The little people end up getting drunk because they were supplied with normal people amounts of alcohol. No one, you know, thought like, oh, we can just give them like a quarter, you know, like a third of what we would normally put out. So they're getting absolutely hammered. And this compared with being under the hot sun all day, um, you know, they start kind of becoming delirious and the alcohol hits them a lot harder than it normally would. And they began they began like chastising people waiting in line and almost like heckling the audience members to the point where Disney was like okay this is actually going exactly opposite from how we wanted we wanted like these friendly mascots to like entice people and oh I met the real Pinocchio and instead you're going to see this movie premiere and this little dude up you know on the top of the uh, the building is like spitting at you and cursing and throwing food at you and using all sorts of vulgarities so like parents are covering their children's ears and this this keeps escalating right like it doesn't just uh like kind of die down on its own it keeps escalating escalating and it gets so bad that the police are called and the police go up on top of where this little platform where all of these little Pinocchios um, are staying. And since it had gotten so hot, a lot of them just began stripping their clothes off and they didn't have any Clothes on underneath the Pinocchio outfits. So the police go up on top of this little platform. They see a whole bunch of naked little people, some dressed as Pinocchio, some half dressed as Pinocchio, some totally nude. And they're literally smoking cigars, they're playing cards, and they've got alcohol. Like it's literally pleasure island, you know, on this little platform above. So the police they start chasing them around and it, it actually Uh, makes way for like a comical like Benny Hill style chase scene where like, you know, these little people scatter in different directions and a couple cops are trying to chase them down. And the, the whole culmination, right. The, the climax of this whole event that absolutely happened was the police putting these little people in burlap sacks and bringing them down a ladder and throwing them essentially into a paddy wagon in little burlap sacks. So, I mean, I don't know if, if this were on video, this would probably be way better of a uh, an entertaining video to watch than the Pinocchio movie. And that might be sacrilege to say, but man, I just wish that I could have been a, a fly on the wall when this was all happening. And I can only imagine, too, you know, uh, Disney and all the executives like freaking out about how horribly awry this whole sort of publicity attempt went.
1: They, they should have been just like, go get some donkey tails, stat, just throw them on the little people. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. This is this is a moral thing. Yeah, we're trying to teach a lesson.
1: Well, um, I know the Disney mascot costumes and, and such were quite disturbing. Uh probably until when when did they start looking like reasonable? I, I just know when you see the 50s mask like Mickey Mouse costumes and stuff, they're like mildly terrifying looking.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, th- I think in like the 70s or 80s, they did the thing where they would start making like the huge um eyes, and they it was like a mesh. So now they like everything happened through the eyes, but before then, um, the masks would like almost make just like a little hole where the mouth was, and like they almost pretended like it was an actual head on top of your head. But, you know, obviously like the airflow and the acoustics and just the whole practical aspect of it didn't work out. So hence, these people all, you know, stripping down and taking the masks off and taking, you know, their costumes off and running around naked to cool down. I don't know if you've ever been to New York City um, or in major, almost any major city, but like that, that asphalt is just soaking up the sun all day. So even after the sun goes down, now all that heat starts dissipating from you know the concrete and the asphalt and it gets really hot
1: yeah, yeah the urban
0: heat island <laughs> yep so
1: but yeah premier, so that's one of my I favorite remember.
0: stories and a lot of people have never even heard that before it's and it's fun to look into and you if you look hard enough you can find An actual image, and it's from the Disney History Institute or Historical Institute or something. And it's got like four or five of these little Pinocchios, you know, waving down at the crowd. This is presumably probably like three or four hours before it just went haywire.
1: (laughs) Okay. That, that, yeah, that, that, that is a way to definitely cap off here. Not, not very caught, I guess, but uh, I don't know. It's it's a bacchanal. There we go. (laughs) Grecian style bacchanal. They, need, they So the premiere was New York City. So, yeah, so I was sitting there thinking, couldn't you just go hire the folks that were in The Wizard of Oz, but maybe they were West Coasters. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and this was also sort of like a last minute thing. I think like it was clearly not planned out enough in advance that where they were like vetting uh, the people that they were hiring. It it must have just happened like a couple weeks before that premiere.
1: Yeah, I'm going to guess someone got fired the next day. <laughs> someone thought it was a great idea and then
0: immediately regretted it. Guaranteed. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, I guess we'll wind down today then. Could you, uh, uh, giving you an option here to throw out something else with the audit.
0: Not really. The, the other cool thing that we didn't really get into, which is a, t- a tiny note. But if you break down the actual word Pinocchio, um. Peen being pine, um, assuming that he came from a pine tree, but this could also be a reference to like the pineal gland, um, again, because it's invoking this divine consciousness into this inanimate um, creature. And essentially, there's, you know, the Gnostic and sort of mystical visions of this is that the pineal gland is the, the seat of the soul. So if there were some kind of divine spark coming from without, it would necessarily go through your pineal gland, at least according to sort of this, this sort of realm of information. And that um, okio um, stands for eye. So you've got this pine, this pine fruit eye so it's it's almost d- a direct reference to pineal gland it's likely not what he had in mind when he came up with pinocchio pinocchio pino being a diminutive of um Giuseppe, as we mentioned before because it was Giuseppino. so they took pino occhio pinocchio um so it, it's i love the kind of the wordplay because it can mean so many different things but it could also just be a bunch of like semantic coincidences it's it's really hard to know unless you go back and and talk to the original authors but that's one of my favorite things just the word play on the word Pinocchio itself
1: yeah they actually do specifically mention um him being made of pine because I made a note here being like why not mahogany or spruce (laughs) so
0: those are those were a little bit classier than than Pinocchio
1: yeah yeah well you built the the, you build the instruments with spruce I guess so But hey, you can build you can build guitars out of pine, too. <laughs>
0: um, I, I bet you if you look hard enough, there's probably like a really cool, um, you know, uh, like esoteric reference to pine wood versus other types of wood that he could have been carved out of.
1: Yeah, yeah, because uh, the I mean, back to your pineal gland, that's like the pine shaped like pine cone, right? So there's even a connection there.
0: Yeah, correct. Well, that's exactly why it's called the pineal gland is because the the shape represents this this pine cone. And again, pino, even without it being the um, like a nickname for Giuseppe Giuseppino, is that pino literally translates to pine and occhio translates to eye. So Pinocchio directly translates to pine eye, pineal gland. It's because the the pineal gland too. For anyone it's not aware, it's it's almost like a dead eye socket. Like it has the same sort of um, wiring and optical nerve endings that your actual eyes do, but it's almost like something lost to evolution long ago where, you know, you don't actually have an eye in there, but it it essentially takes the same anatomy of an eye. So it's almost like an, like a, we all had a third eye at some point, but it just kind of shriveled up and died. And now it's just this empty hole where this third eye could come back into being again. And again, this this is not a um, like a, a new age, 1980s, 1990s retrospect back in the concept of the pineal gland being at the heart of the soul goes all the way back to like the 1700s, perhaps even earlier than that. So this is definitely um, something that, you know, the wordplay probably was not lost on the original authors or on the animators that adapted it.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the Tibetan imagery has been going that's been there for thousands of years, right? <laughs>
0: yeah I I think uh, Rene Descartes is one of the ones attributed to calling it the like the seat of the soul at least in in sort of modern western philosophy
1: this this has absolutely no um, interpretive value whatever but pinot in Japan is a delicious ice cream treat (laughs) (laughs) it's also a wine right (laughs) oh yeah yeah that's true (laughs) that's with a t but whatever well, uh, wrapping up today, could you give folks uh,
0: where to find you and all of your work? Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, so, yeah, you can find me and my comic books at paranoidamerican.com. And then if you want to see what I'm working on, like up to date, you can go to my Instagram, which is at paranoid American. Actually, just this week, I think I've announced like four or five brand new projects. So, yeah, go follow me on Instagram if you want to see all the, the new stuff. Groovy. As for this one, it is Oral Hygiene.
1: We're on Facebook, Twitter, all of that. Um, We make lots of podcasts out here in Japan with our pals. It's under the Patreon umbrella of Podcastio Podcastius. You can hear about science fiction films, The Twilight Zone, Pokemon, and the somewhat aggressive game game show. (laughs) Where where you can hear some Brits screaming obscenities at each other about obscure video games. It's fun.
0: (laughs) almost like call of duty but just a little bit more dignified right
1: yeah that sounds that sounds right well actually they have like you know one guy's more in the kind of game they got the fighting guy kind of you know fighting game sort of guy so yeah, they come from slightly different spheres of the gaming world but uh i'm, I'm not that much of a gamer myself so i don't know but
0: <laughs> oh you're in right in the heartland though man This like like uh japan is like a video game mecca for a lot of the people that i know
1: oh yeah we still have some arcades I, i've been to some yep. very good arcades so i'm not i'm not saying I, and i have weirdly specific knowledge about like um jrpgs that were on the ds so i'm not i'm not bereft of these skills but uh <laughs> or knowledge or whatever <laughs> but uh yeah got to go to pleasure island to find the best arcade so off we go <laughs> the film strip are you on the final page well done